It was back in the late 20th century that a Norwegian statistician went and actually did the hard research and tallied up all of the wars that had been fought and had been recorded or known of in human history. And he put it all on his computer and did some analysis of it. And he came to some unbelievable, you know, uh, uh, death. 5,560 years in that period of time, there had been 14,531 wars, averaging a little over 2.6 wars per year. In the history of the world thus far, there have been 286 warless years. That's less than 5% of our history. In other words, statistically speaking, there's a 20 times more chance to have a war going on somewhere in the world than there actually is to have peace. And it's quite obvious that through the years, war has been the rule on earth and peace the exception. Why is that? Why so many wars? What is the cause of them? Well, James chapter 4, verse 2 says it's things like covetousness and greed, lust, uh, want. You want and you do not have, so what do you do? You kill and you covet. Well, just as significant to the motive of why is the question then, what is the remedy? Just as significant is the remedy, the answer to humanity's primal lust and desires and greed that causes so many conflicts. Well, in 1919, the President of the United States at that time, Woodrow Wilson said, a League of Nations is the only hope for mankind. Well, since that declaration 102 years ago, over 200 peace treaties have been signed and broken. See, humanity's problem is sin. We inherit a sinful nature when we come into existence. And until that is death dealt with, there will be no peace. And the history of the world teaches that over and over again. And the, you know, as important as the United Nations or the former League of Nations have been in the last century or so, they are and forever will be powerless over sin. Only God has the antidote to sin. And we see that in our text today, in chapter 5 and in chapter 6. God is the great reconciler of all mankind. Now the Apostle Paul knew this truth well. And he was driving this point home to the Corinthian church here. And as part of this discussion, the Apostle Paul mentions that since God is the great reconciler, that he takes it an additional step. That he actually includes us as his followers in the ministry of reconciliation. Verse 20 says, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. And in chapter 6, verse 1, as God's co-workers. We urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. This is pretty amazing stuff here. We are co-laborers with God. Co-laborers with Christ. And since that's true, then what should be our motivation in sharing the gospel? Verse 11, chapter 5. Since then we know what it is to fear the Lord, we try to persuade others what we are is plain to God. And I hope it is also plain to your conscience. Sorry about that. I thought I was cranking it up pretty good. 
I'm going to start doing her old school here pretty quick and just, uh, if we weren't live streaming, I probably could, but sorry about that. But verse 11 again, since then we, we know what it is to fear the Lord, we try to persuade others. You remember the concluding verses in, in the text last week that Pastor James was preaching, verse 9 and 10 there? So we make it our goal to please him whether we're at home in the body or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due for the things done while in the body, whether good or whether bad. Now, there's going to be an accounting for what we do in this life, for what we do in this body, and this body as a believer, as a Christian, whether it's good or whether it's bad. And that's when he says, since we know what it is to fear the Lord, because we know that there's going to be this accounting that's going to take place. Paul says, since we know that, it's going to impact, and it should impact, the way we live our lives. So what do we do? We try to persuade others to believe this faith as well. Now, Paul suffered beatings in his years of ministry. He had been imprisoned. He had all kinds of harsh treatment. Uh, He had lived in harsh conditions. He had experienced poverty. He had been in danger from bandits. He had many sleepless nights, had been shipwrecked numerous times, and he had all kinds of deprivation that he had to go through in order to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ, to see people come to faith in Christ. And what other explanation could there be for someone like the church's greatest missionary, the Apostle Paul, than recognizing that he's going to give an account for what God had entrusted to him? And what other, what other explanation could you give for someone like Elizabeth Elliot, who went and ministered to the Alka Indians in Ecuador, the very Stone Age people who had killed her husband when he was trying to reach out to them, and their four closest missionary friends, she She went to these people with her young daughter, Rachel, in tow to win them to Christ. See, we persuade, Paul says. We do not threaten. We do not condemn. We do not browbeat people. We we don't intimidate. We don't try to bribe or cajole people. We pray for opportunities, and we pray for boldness to go and share our faith, and then we do it openly and honestly, and we do everything within our power by the power of the Holy Spirit and God's grace, everything that we can do to persuade others to join us in following Christ. Well, the end of verse 11 says, what we are is plain to God. And I hope it's also plain to your conscience. We're not trying to, we are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. Now, Paul is being very transparent here. His life is an open book, and this was long before gotcha journalism uh, arrived on the, on the scene, long before the cancel culture would launch its investigations into everything that people have posted online for the last couple of decades or so, long before any picture could surface of some inappropriate behavior that someone was doing. And most of us, frankly, probably wouldn't want to be an open book like the Apostle Paul is here. As the saying goes, if you live long enough, you're going to have to live plenty of things to live down and plenty of things that we probably wouldn't want to have to go public with. Paul was very open about his past, about his testimony, about the account on the road to Damascus where he was traveling because he despised Christians. He was going to Damascus to persecute Christians. He was going to put a stop to this growing movement of Jesus' followers. And the fact of Paul's transparency meant that 
that no one could spring Paul's past on him because he was completely transparent about it. He even says here, God knows me. God knows me completely. And, and I hope and I believe and I, I think you should know in your consciences as well. You should know me as well, Corinthians. See, Paul wanted the Corinthian church to be proud of him. In fact, in the first letter, chapter 11, verse 1 of 1 Corinthians, he wrote, be imitators of me as I am of Christ Jesus. Now, that's an older translation because that's the way I memorized it years ago, and it's hard to change. The newer translations, though, say, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. This is all because of what, Paul says, is in his heart. Not because of outward appearances, That's not how we should be basing any of this stuff based upon outward appearance. And we know from the Old Testament that doesn't work at all. In fact, uh, when David was anointed, we have the account there in 1 Samuel chapter 16, and, uh, and Samuel went there to anoint one of the sons of Jesse, and, you know, they're parading him before him. He sees the first one, Eliab, you know, handsome, ruddy, all this kind of stuff, and he's like, oh, Samuel, surely that's the, the Lord's anointed, and it wasn't. Six brothers passed by. None of them are the ones that Samuel's supposed to anoint. So he asked Jesse, do you have any more boys? Any more sons here? Well, I got one, you know, youngster out there, you know, tending sheep out in the field. Well, go get him. Fetch him. And, of course, he comes back, and what does they say? What does the conclusion end up being? Man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. Yes, we're living in an era right now where well-known persons, uh, pastors, have let the church down. Ted Haggard, Mark Driscoll. James McDonald, Bill Hybels, Ravi Zacharias, just to name some. But, but do not let the failure of a few sour you on trusting others. Look for this message of Paul. My life is an open book. I like the way Ruth Graham Bell used to define what a saint was. She says a saint is someone who makes it easy to believe in Jesus. This should be our goal in life. So that our spouse, our children, our grandchildren, our friends, our neighbors, our co-workers, those within our networks and spheres of influence will find it easy to believe in Jesus. And you know in the New Testament, in the description of elders in 1 Timothy chapter 3, it says in verse 2, one of the qualifications of leaders within the church is that they should be above reproach. That's actually a Greek term that's used to describe a garment without any folds in it. In other words, when this is applied to a person's character, like a church leader, it means there should be no secret pockets of deception, no secret life, no place where someone could say, gotcha, gotcha. Shouldn't be anything like that. No secret sin, no intentionally unresolved conflicts. There should be nothing hidden because there's nothing to hide. Verse 13 here in our text continues on. If we're out of our mind, as some say, it's for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. Some apparently were saying that Paul was kind of losing it, that Paul was out of his mind. And we know a few years later in Acts chapter 25, uh, when the record shows there that there was a conflict with Jews in Jerusalem and Judea between Paul and so he ends up having to appear before this Roman governor named Festus. And, uh, and Festus, of course, is trying to hear out his story. 
And then he ends up conferring with King Agrippa, who, of course, was a, a Jewish king in that region, because he determined that the dispute between Paul and the Jews in Jerusalem and Judea was a religious matter and therefore really not a Roman one. Well, his interpretation to King Agrippa in chapter 25, verse 19 is this. They had some points of dispute with him about their religion and about a dead man named Jesus, who Paul claimed was alive. And when Paul then appeared before King Agrippa in chapter 26, in verse 8, here's his defense. He says, why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? Well, later in that chapter, in verse 24, Festus is there taking it all in because, after all, you know, because of Rome, he's really, truly the authority in that particular region. And he'd had it by the time we got to verse 24 of chapter 16. And he interrupts Paul's defense and he says, You're out of your mind, Paul, he shouted. Your great learning is driving you insane. He says, This is nuts. He says, You're crazy. You're insane. You're not in your right mind. Paul, you're losing it. You have gone right over the edge. You're loco, you know. A few fries short of a happy meal is how people would say that nowadays. You know, Paul, you're missing a little insulation up there. You know, your elevator doesn't go all the way to the top floor. Festus said this to Paul because it's easier to dismiss a person as crazy than it is to take them seriously. And if Festus can write Paul off as a highly educated wacko, then he doesn't have to consider the evidence that Jesus rose from the dead. Again, verses 13 through 15 here in our text. If we're out of our mind, as some say, it's for God. If we're in our right mind, it's for you, you know, because we're proclaiming Christ and the resurrection and, and his victory over sin, and people think that's nuts. Well, th 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 we're doing that for God. But, but if we're in our right mind, it's for you. You get it. You understand this. That's why we're telling you about Jesus. For Christ's love compels us. That's what drives us. Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Paul doesn't care if people call him crazy. He's secure in the love that God has for him and in his identity in Christ. And yes, our goal in this world is not to go around stirring up opposition, and it's not certainly to act crazy. It is to be, though, narrow-minded, narrow-minded about God's truth. And frankly, too many modern-day American Christians never make a splash. They never cause a scene. So no one would ever call them crazy. And as Christians, we believe God has spoken in his word. And we believe that his word is to be obeyed. We believe that there's only one way to heaven, and that's Jesus. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There aren't other options out there. This isn't some kind of, you know, multiple, uh, you know, answer test. There's one answer. And it's Jesus, and we believe that, we proclaim that. 
And some people might think that's just a little too much. It's a little over the top, but that's the truth. That's what we believe. And we believe that God has set the boundaries for acceptable conduct in life, like marriage is between a man and a woman, or like the killing of unborn babies is evil. Positions like these are unpopular in our culture. And frankly, if you are open about your faith, and if you're on social media at all, you are at risk of being canceled. Interestingly, the Taliban in Afghanistan can use social media platforms for all their kind of crud, but as a Christian, you might not be able to continue using it if you pronounce those kinds of things we've been talking about. You know, as believers, we're not ashamed of the gospel. We do not apologize for the word of God, and we do not keep quiet about our faith just so we can get along with others or just so we can fit in. Because it's hard to be a Christian in this world because we simply do not fit in. It's like trying to put a square peg in a round hole. It doesn't work. You know, I read a fascinating quote recently from Pastor Ray Pritchard about the legendary rock artist uh, Alice Cooper. And this was someone who was popular back in the 1970s and 1980s. And he actually became a Christian a while back. And he said this, Drinking beer is easy. Trashing your hotel room is easy. But becoming a Christian, that is a tough call. That is rebellion. And he's exactly right. It's a lot easier to be a part of the party crowd. It's a lot easier to get drunk and horse around. And, and frankly, it's like the world doesn't think too much of that. But, oh, boy, you start telling people about Jesus, and all of a sudden, uh-oh, woo wacko. You know, that's what it's like. If you become a disciple of Christ and let Jesus be the leader of your life, then you're going to be going against the flow every single day of your life. This is why our motivation for sharing the good news of Jesus must always be to honor God. So if that's our motivation for sharing the faith, then how should we view people that we're trying to reach? Some of the same people that would make fun of us or put us down or think we're out of it. What should be our motivation? Well, listen to what Paul said here in verse 16. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. You know, it's so common in our culture to evaluate people based upon their gender, their skin color, their age, their height, their weight, their appearance, their income, their grade point average, their position in society or their behavior or their family name, or really a big one is their abilities, their talents. It's so easy to label people nowadays, to put them in various boxes based upon where they live. Well, they're rural or they're urban, they're suburban, they're metro, or, you know, where they work. And we put people in these boxes. And sadly, we even do this as Christians to a degree. We can make snap judgments regarding people based upon their outward appearance to see if, whether or not that's a person we can associate with. And uh, before the Apostle Paul became the church's greatest missionary, He actually took pride in his Jewish heritage. He compared himself with other young Jewish men uh, his age to see how he measured up. He didn't have much use for Gentiles, especially if they were part of that new sect called Christianity. And Paul was very proud of his convictions, and then everything changed. Uh, I'll read about that for you in the book of Philippians. 
chapter 3, verses 4 through 8. Beginning halfway through verse 4, it says, If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss, therefore a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. What a radical change. And 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 16 and 17, highlight this. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view, though we once regarded Christ this way. That's what Paul did. We do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. Now, he says, I see people completely differently than I used to see them before. I used to judge them by all those earthly standards and those worldly standards when I saw them. That was always my first observation when I noticed people. I don't do that anymore. Now I look at people through God's eyes. See, people look at the outward appearance. God looks on the inside. People value popularity. God values character. People prize intelligence. God looks at the heart. We elevate those with money. Those are the people that we like to look up to and honor. God honors the honest. We are prideful regarding what we own and all of our possessions, and we show those pictures, and we take pictures, and we post them on social media, and we do all those things. Well, God cherishes what we give away. We catalog our accomplishments. We got trophies and plaques and awards, and, and God prizes integrity. We prioritize education. Education's a good thing, right? Well, God values wisdom. We glorify size. Well, God makes note of quality. We live for fame, and God seeks the humble. And our views often tend to be shallow. They tend to, 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 to be pretty thin and flimsy at times. Well, God's are always deep. We get caught up in the here and now. We get caught up in this life. We get caught up... In the temporal, God is all about eternity. That's why it says in verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has come, the new is here. Are you hearing this? Seriously. Are you hearing what this is saying? And do you understand the messenger that God used by his Holy Spirit to bring this to us? It was the Apostle Paul. Remember the Apostle Paul, Acts chapter 8, verse 1. This is right after the killing of Stephen. And Saul approved of their killing him. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. That's Paul. His Roman name is Paul. His Hebrew name is Saul. Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Chapter 9, verse 1 and 2. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. 
He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Paul was a religious fanatic, not unlike the Taliban are in their Muslim faith in Afghanistan right now. A zealot, complete in his hatred for Christians. A person who would stop at nothing to spread, stop the spread of Christianity. And then Christ appears to him on the road to Damascus. Therefore, if anybody is in Christ Jesus, they are a new creation. Do you hear who's saying this to us? Do you understand? Paul wasn't seeking Christ. He was seeking to oppose Christ. He was seeking to destroy the church, to destroy Christians. But Christ was seeking Paul. In Galatians chapter 1, verses 22 and 23, it says, I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only heard the report the man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he tried to destroy. Folks, this is a miracle that only God could produce. Amen? Amen. Paul hated Christians. Now he seeks their fellowship. He once despised the truth. Now he'll give up everything to live by the truth. He once did everything he could to disrupt the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now he's going around proclaiming it everywhere he can. Verses 18 and 20, 18 through 20 of 2 Corinthians 5. And we all who with unveiled faith, excuse me, that's chapter 4, chapter 5. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the ministry of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. As God's co-workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For he says, in the time of my favor, I heard you. And in the day of salvation, I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day. Of salvation. We worry about this crazy world we're living in right now and how we should be living. But God says to us through his word, now is the time of my favor. Now is the time of salvation. This is the day of salvation. And you're my ministers of reconciliation. So how are we to live in this crazy mixed up period in our nation's history? One where we're ambassadors living in a foreign nation representing our nation the nation of believers in Christ Jesus representing our God? Well, we're not to needlessly be offensive like our nation has been uh, recently this summer in Afghanistan, purposely flying the gay pride flag at the, in a Muslim country during the gay pride month of June at the embassy in Kabul. And we wonder how a nation like that could collapse in one short weekend to the Taliban 
when we did something like that? See, our job is to represent God. Our job is to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with the world around us, and we're to carry out God's work in this world. And that means no longer looking at people from any kind of a worldly point of view. It means that we see them as Christ would see them, as someone that Jesus died for, as someone that Jesus loves. And that's the love that compels us, that moves us forward no matter what the cost. After all, God is the great reconciler of all mankind. Let's pray together. God, our Father, today we are grateful for, again, the chance to look into your word and, God, to learn from you, to see what you have for us as ministers of this reconciliation, as co-laborers with you. And, God, it's an overwhelming task. It, it, we, God, we get caught up in, in everyday life and the stress of everyday life and uh, sometimes completely forget what our role and our mission truly is here in life. But, God, you want us to be people that can help others come to believe in Jesus. We aren't the ones who make people believe, but we are the ones to persuade people toward that end. Thank you for the example of Paul and Silas and Timothy and Barnabas and others, and those even in the history of our church who have done that very thing that have led us to this point that we're at today. But God, help us not to lose sight of the goal, to not uh, um, forget what really everything's all about here the ministry of reconciliation. God, thank you that you have saved a wretched sinner like me, like many of us here, and that you have given to us that message to tell others about. Thank you for this, we pray in Jesus' name.